0: Welcome to episode one of two of the Lynch with Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, I don't know how your day is going today, but I sure pray that you are living out the life that God created you to lead and live in. You know, He's got a purpose and a plan for each of us. He's put us in this crazy season of leadership, and He's not going to waste it. He's not going to look back and go, God, I didn't see that coming. He knew right where you would be. He knew right where you are, and he knew right what you needed. And today is a day that you and I both need. I think so many times things happen to us in this life, and we wonder, where was God? Was God taking a nap? Was God just delayed in responding? And we can, we can look at our own lives and think times are wasted. The reality is, Nothing is wasted, and God can use our greatest joys, and God can use our greatest pains for others. Today, you get to hear the story of a gentleman who has walked the worst nightmare a man or a human could ever walk, and that's losing their spouse tragically. Today, you get to hear the story of Davey Blackburn. Davey is the host of the crazy popular Nothing Is Wasted podcast. But at the time this tragedy occurred, Davey was a pastor, and he was building a great church, building a great life with his wife, Amanda, and their little boy, Weston, when tragedy struck their home. But Davey learned a lesson we all have to learn. Nothing is ever wasted. You're going to be challenged you're going to be encouraged, but at the end of the day, I think you're going to be glad you listened because your faith will be stronger because of Davy's story. So I don't know what you're doing today. I don't know where you're at today, but I want you to listen in good. This is not one to take notes on. This is one to be encouraged by. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to my conversation with podcast host, author speaker, and friend, Davey Blackburn. Well, Davey, thank you so much for joining on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It's an honor to have you, buddy. Oh, Mike! It is an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's been fun fun doing a little research. I told you I'm an avid listener. You got a phenomenal podcast. We'll mm-hmm. get into here shortly, but we we got a couple of things in common. One, you know, college baseball player. Yeah, So I want to hear mm-hmm. a little bit about the college baseball experience. You've been a okay. church planner, so we yep. got that. So, tell me about the college baseball experience. Oh, geez.
1: <laughs> well, what's funny is it kind of works into my story a little bit. Right. Um, you know, I played baseball growing up. Uh, it was kind of it was kind of uh, by my dad passed it down. My dad grew up in Haiti as a missionary's kid. And so he, he knew two sports, baseball and soccer. And so we just, that's what he, you know, kind of issued us into. I ended up following the baseball route. And, uh, right before my senior year of high school, we moved my dad's a pastor. And so, I mean, you imagine growing up in for 10 years in one area, Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. I'm growing up 10 years and I've got my sights set on division one baseball. Uh, that's what, I mean, I, I offers at you know, uh, small offers at university of Alabama, Clemson university, some of these, like these small, these like, you know, big time baseball schools just offers to go play here and there. And, and the Lord just had a different, Mm -hmm. he had a different plan for my life. Um, because I think baseball was an idol to -hmm. be honest with you, Mike, it was, it was something that, uh, I was doing for me. And when my dad set us down right before my senior year of high school said, Hey, we're moving. Um, it, it upended my life. And uh, the Lord used that to, to just de- to destroy any idols that were going on in my life at the time. And baseball was one of those. And so at that moment, all of these doors just began to close. All the big time you know, schools that I was looking at began to close. And this one school that I said I would never go to, (laughs) Southern Wesleyan University, this little small NAIA school in Central South Carolina uh, that I happened to only go up and try out at because my mom insisted when we were there for a private tryout at Clemson University. She was like, just try out there. My dad was a Wesleyan pastor. I'm like, I don't want to go to Southern Wesleyan. That's where all the Wesleyan (laughs) kids go, you know, and they offered me a full ride scholarship to play ball. And, uh, that was in the fall of my senior year. Mm. I had to sign by January one. And wouldn't you know it that, uh, December 28th of that year. So th- two, three days before I'm supposed to sign, the Lord calls me out of what I want to do with my life and calls me into ministry mm. at a mm. big conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so it's like all of these things, doors closing, all these things line up where God just opens this door wide mm. for me to go play baseball at Southern Wesleyan and study ministry. And it's a crazy story uh, how the Lord tapped me to, to do that and got me stop running away from what I know that now that he built me to do and, and called me to do, and that's ministry. But uh, I loved it, loved every mm. bit of playing ball. Um, we, I thought I was there to play ball and, and even started, that idol started creeping in a little bit. Yep. My freshman year um, had some great success my freshman year on the field. Everybody was talking freshman player of the year, and then I got hurt. Won't you know? Of course. Yep. And we know. Looking back, we're like, "Well, that's the Lord again." That's right. To remove those idols, but I got you know had an arm injury, and the Lord just reminded me, "Hey, you're not here for baseball. You're here for ministry." And um, at the time, I was attending a church called New Spring Church in South Carolina, and I was seeing Mike for the first time ever in my life. I was seeing people come to know Christ in droves. Mm at a church service, at a Sunday church service. i had always seen it at camp. I'd always seen it at big conferences, like these big Holy Spirit, powerful movements, but i had never seen it on a Sunday. And I remember the first time visiting this church with a couple of the buddies on my baseball team at, at school. And we drove 45 minutes from our campus to go visit this church. And I'm like, I'm never driving 45 minutes ever again to go visit a church. And we get in the service, the pastor says, if you want to come to know Christ, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to walk down to the front. I'm like, yeah, right. There is no way anybody's, I'd never seen that happen at a church service before. And sure enough, I'm like peeking around, looking and people are standing up in droves coming down to the mm. front to give their life to Jesus. And right there in that stretch, there were several things that happened. But in that stretch of of, you know, the beginning of my freshman year of college, God began to stir something inside of me uh, for ministry and that he wanted to use the talents and the giftings that he had given me. Later, I would learn that he would also want to use the trials and the mm-hmm. tragedies right. that he allows into our lives. But he wants to use those things ultimately to terminate in ministry, not to terminate in ourselves. And so what's really cool you with know, sparing the the long story of it, Mike, we, we had, um, uh, there were three of us that were Christians on the baseball team at the time, three of us. And we had in one semester 15 guys come to know Christ. Wow. And then started a ministry for athletes there on campus, specifically for athletes. And the very next semester saw 48 athletes come to know Christ. I mean, just a massive revival happening. So as much as I love playing college baseball, what I really look back on and what I what I esteem is watching God moves in such a powerful way to see these athletes come to know Christ. And um Man, it was just such fun memories, such fun memories.
0: You know, there, there's a phrase we use a lot on here. I heard an old pastor say it, and, the, and the phrase was, God never waste our time, and he never waste our experiences. And wow. you ending up there wasn't an accident because you you went there and found a little bit more than just baseball, correct? Yep, that's right. So you met? Right. did you meet your bride there at that time?
1: I did. She didn't go to school there, but I met her through, uh, who is now my brother-in-law. His name is Gavin. He was an athlete. He was a golfer there. Uh, on the athlete hall, which I was trying to figure out, why is he on the athlete <laughs> hall if he's a golfer? You know, <laughs> I'll take offense to that. <laughs> I love golf, but <laughs> no, we, um, yeah, you know, we we met, and we were uh, Gavin and I did, and we used to joke around. We needed to meet two girls that were best friends so we could just hang out all the time and date those two girls. And then sophomore year, he came back and he mm. had started dating a girl he dated in high school. Uh, her name is Amber, and he said, "Man, I don't know why I didn't think about this, but you got to meet my girlfriend's sister." And um, I'm like, that stuff never works, like get set up that long distance thing. And he's like, just come up with me to Elkhart over fall break and we'll meet her. And so we did fall break of my sophomore year, we go up, we go to a, a Hawk Nelson concert. And after the concert, we go to Steak and Shake which I don't know in, in Georgia, they have steak and shake. Oh now? yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. So the Shekinah glory has visited yeah, that's Georgia. In right. the form of now there may the be two forms. cars
0: in front of you in an eight hour wait, but yeah, that we have Steak <laughs> and <check>. Shake. <laughs> they, they haven't quite cracked the code like
1: Chick-fil-A has <laughs> no, the customer service have they? Uh, so we go to steak and shake afterwards and, and I'm drinking a, a chocolate milkshake and she's drinking a strawberry one. And I try to get flirtatious with, with her and just kind of crack a joke. And she laughs And she shoots milkshake out of her nose. (laughs) Right there, first time we've ever met. And she's shooting milkshake out of her nose. And I look at her, Micah, and I just, I'm like, man, I could look at this space for the rest of my life. Wow. I was smitten. I called my mom that night. I said, mom, I think I met the girl of my dreams. And I was up to that point pretty particular. I didn't date a whole lot. And my mom was like, she literally said, who are you? And what have you done with my son? How about that? I said, I just, I don't know. There's something about this girl. And uh, she was a pastor's kid as well. And she just loved the Lord. You could tell it she's radiated with uh, the love of Jesus. And and so we started a long distance dating relationship. And then she went to school down in Florida and I finished up school in South Carolina. We graduated uh, in 2008, uh, both of us. And then we, we got married. We did a double wedding that summer, August of 2008, with her sister and our brother-in-law, Gavin. So just a
0: really, really cool story. That is so good. You know, you look back at that, Davey, and I'd love to know, what did your parents do well? So you both, you came from a pastor's home, she came from a pastor's Mm -hmm. home. What did your parents pour into you that they were just passing on that you didn't know one day you were really going to have to use? What were things your parents did well? I'm glad you said that too, because you, it's
1: more of a, You know, we say it's more caught than taught, parenting Mm -hmm. is, right? And it was more that they created a culture in our home and an environment in our home rather than telling us things. And so it's not really until looking back on it now that I'm a parent, I've got three kids, and I'm trying to go, what what in the world do I do to create a culture in my home? And now I'm referencing back so much of what we experienced growing up. But I think one of the primary things my parents did is, although my dad was a pastor, he rarely ever missed ball games. Mm. He was often our coach. He was very, very, very involved. In fact, turned down lots of different opportunities I found out later where he could have um, accelerated his ministry career, but he turned those down to make sure that our family was healthy. Mm. And you know, my dad is a, just a gem of a man. I mean, growing up, grew up a missionary's kid, unbelievably compassionate. I joke all the time that he, some people give you the shirt off their back, he'll give you an entire wardrobe. Like wow. he just would go to the nth degree to serve you. And he he modeled that for our family, but he also, he also modeled that he would serve other people for our family and then brought us along in the process. And so there were things like, you know, Christmas Eve, every Christmas Eve, we would as a family put on a Christmas Eve communion for our church. They would come in as families and we would do communion, we'd serve them and all that. And That's the last thing you want to do as a kid growing up on Christmas Eve, right? And then after that, we would leave and we would go take cookies and carol to the shut-ins. And so the whole time my brother and I were like, oh my gosh, can we just like get home and do the Christmas Eve stuff that's for us, right? But my parents were so conscientious about teaching us that this is not about being consumers. This is about serving other people. This is about ministry. And so I say all that to say they they didn't, they didn't say, hey, we're going to go do ministry and leave you guys here. And so there wasn't a bitterness that crept in when it came to ministry in my heart. They said, hey, th- what we do as Blackburns is we minister to people. Mm. We serve people together. And they made it accessible for us to be able to participate in that. And, uh, and so now that's what we're trying to do as a family ourselves is go, how can we help our our seven-year-old daughter, our six-year-old son, our nine-month-old
0: son to do ministry together as a family? I know my kids are so funny. My son's 26, my daughter's 23, and they'll see the younger staff I have and their little kids running around and we're doing something after a service, stacking a chair in my son, 26. now look back and go, <laughs> that's how it all starts, man. Yep. <laughs> Your parents have suckered you in. You're in, man. It. It's, a, it. it's a fraternity. And I, I know Andy <laughs> Stanley said one time, if you give me an option of hiring two people, one's a pastor's kid and one's not, and they're both in ministry, I'll always choose the pastor's kit hmm. because they've seen it, and they yep. chose to get in it anyways.
1: Yeah, and that's it. If they've chosen to get into it, right. that means their parents did something
0: right. And uh, and I know you served at New Spring, yep. just mm-hmm. serving while you're on, but then you got the itch to plant a church. Right. So tell me a little bit about that experience moving to Indianapolis.
1: Yeah, so uh, we were on staff at New Spring after I graduated college for about three and a half years uh, I helped to start the first video campus there, was a youth pastor, did a lot of different roles. And then um, there was something, for whatever reason, we thought we'd be there for the rest of our lives. We loved it. I mean, love, love, love our New Spring family. Still very close with the, so many of the leadership there. But there was something about, I, there. It, it was really the Lord nudging. Like, I don't know if you ever had this, like the Lord knocking on your heart and you, and you pray against it because it's so scary and daunting. That's what it was. It was this, this urge and this tug that, you know, some people, some people claim they've heard the audible voice of God. We never heard that, but there were over the next eight months after we first initially heard this tug, there were so many things that almost like Gideon prayers that we prayed, Mm -hmm. God, if this is something you're calling us to, you've got to do this. And then bam, he would do it. And then things were just jumping out in scripture that were just pointing us over and over and over. And so finally, with, you know, after about eight months of resistance, we finally opened our hands and said, okay, Lord, if you're calling us to plant a church, you've got to give us a city. And then he gave us a city very, very clearly. And that was Indianapolis, Indiana. And so in uh, November 11th, 2011, we packed up a moving van. We drove up to Indianapolis to start a church. And you've planted a church, yeah. you know this is can be an extremely difficult endeavor. And we did what's called uh, parachute drop planting, yeah. which means we didn't really know anybody. We didn't have like an already established network of people. And so we're just dropping into a city that we know virtually nothing about. We didn't know anything at the time about church planting networks or trainings. We didn't know about arc or acts 29 or any of that. So we're literally just going, God, you just tell us what we're supposed to do. And we're going to do it. Our, our philosophy was we will embrace what you place in front of us right now. Wow. That's it. We're going to say yes to everything until you just slam the door shut. And so the first thing we felt like we needed to do was get a house because we said, we're not here temporarily. We're, we're like, this is a long-term thing. We don't want everyone, anybody in the back of their mind to go like, ah, do I want to join up on this yep. thing? Cause they're living in an apartment over there and things go awry. They're just going to head back to South Carolina. We said, no, this is, this is where we're planted. We're going build, to build roots here and, and raise our family here. And so we got a realtor, start looking around at houses. And uh, the very first house that we look at is a house called uh, on 2812 Sunnyfield Court. Um, and we walk into this house and Amanda goes running around the house. She's looking at all the rooms. She comes back, big old bright eyed. She goes, Davey, this is our house. And I'm like, All right, hold on a second. This is the first house we've looked at. I've watched Chip and Joanna, right? Like we don't, (laughs) you don't buy the first house you look at. We've got all these other, you know, houses we're going to look at today. And she's like, I'm just telling you, this is our house. So we go look at about 25 other houses over the next couple of weeks. We come back to 2812 Sunnyfield Court. And she gives me that look, Mike, that most husbands have gotten before. They're like, you should have listened to me the first time. That's right. It would have saved us a lot of time, look, you know? Yep. And we end up putting an offer on this house. Now, our realtor was a man of faith. And so when we put this offer, it was a lowball offer. We're church planters. We didn't know where revenue was coming from. We're like, this is what we feel comfortable with. He was like, hey, I'm believing and trusting. Like, this is going to go through, you know, if God wants you to have this house. And the people on the other end of the, of the negotiating table laughed us off the table. Didn't even entertain a counteroffer. They said, if you want to entertain any kind of negotiation, you got to come back with a much bigger offer than this. We've turned down three other offers much higher than this already. And so we went back prayed about it at amanda's grandmother's house in um a suburb of Indianapolis that we were staying at the time, and her grandmother used to tell us faith is living without scheming, mm. and so we um we just felt like God said, Put the same offer in mm. like if I want you to have this house, you're gonna have this house if i don't you're you're not gonna have this house and uh so it was a, it was kind of a faith step for us. I mean, just honestly, felt a little embarrassed, walked, walked into the realtor's office the next morning and said, Hey, put the same offer in. And they ended up accepting and that became our house. Mm. And, you know, Mike, I don't know. Your listeners may not know our story yet. I'm about to tell it, but you know, how grateful I am now on this side of things that we didn't manipulate the process. That's right. Because there are oftentimes we can manipulate things in life to get what we want, mm-hmm. but inevitably it'll lead us into a place where we, we get what we want, so to speak, but then it could cause us to have a lot of regret and guilt later. Yep. Um, but when you're living in the center of God's calling and it's so clear then it changes the way you walk through trial. It changes the way you walk through these disappointments and these things that hit your life because you know you can be assured of the fact that God's in it and that he's not just bringing you to this situation. He's going to see you through it as well. And um, so we, we settled in this house, and it was, a, it was an awesome house. I mean, we started our church in the house. Uh, we had four people the first week and uh so so i preached a message called invite because we had (laughs) four people and the very next week we had guess how many four people (laughs) and so i had to scrap my message and preach the the message that i preached was called invite harder because i just we gotta like that's exactly uh, right but man you know things started growing and we put our our, their kids ministry back in the master bedroom, put veggie tails on and mm. can't tell you how many times we'd crawl into those sheets and there'd be like goldfish crackers, you know, like <laughs> just like a beautiful, what the scripture says, don't despise the days of early beginnings, right? right? It's just these beautiful early beginnings that were happening. The first people that ever met Jesus in our church met Jesus right there in our living room. I mean, such a cool house dedicated to ministry, hosting people. Um But it's also the same house that on November 10th, 2015, I left for the gym uh, early in the morning and then came back and I walked in to to find Amanda um, face down on the floor in a, a pool of blood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, every time I explain this, I kind of go back to that yeah. moment. And I'm not sure if anybody who's listening to this has has experienced a moment that is that traumatic to, to see your, your best friend, your uh, partner in life and in ministry, um, that you have all of these dreams and hopes that you you've uh, created with to see her in a dire situation like that. um, It is, it is something you would never wish on your worst enemies. Mm. And, I walked through that threshold of the door, um, of, of the, the front door, and I I saw her, and, and, and it couldn't make sense as to what in the world was going on, other than the fact that maybe something had gone wrong with the the pregnancy. Um, we were, we had a son that was 15 months at the time, and we were pregnant with our second 13 weeks along. Um, she had just informed me a couple weeks before this that she was um that she was pregnant again. And so she had, because she had been kind of susceptible to to some dizzy spells and stuff like that with pregnancy, I thought maybe she had just gotten out of the shower, Mm -hmm. fallen, you know, something. So I raced to her side. I, I roll her over and I'd see that she's unconscious, but she's breathing and her breathing is very, very labored. And so quickly I roll her back over and immediately call nine one one And Mike, it felt like it took three hours for the paramedics to get there. And I found out later it took three minutes. Um, But in moments like that, everything just seems to go in fast motion and slow motion all at the same time. Like your senses get this really weird, acute perception. It begins to pick up on these things and almost like a tunnel vision, things that um, details that, you know, maybe stuff that seems out of place. You know, But then everything else seems to fade in the background. And on some level, you feel like you're just watching yourself from above. And so while I'm sitting there with her waiting for the paramedics to come, I just start noticing all these things that seem out of place in our in our living room. Her wallet and credit cards that was strewn all over and a lamp that had fallen over and a ladder that had kind of that decorative piece that had fallen over. And I'm like, what in the world? And all I could sit there and say was, Jesus, no, Jesus, no, Jesus, no, Jesus, no. And, but there was something about it where I just knew that if we just got her to the hospital, everything was going to be okay. And, um, you know, now looking back on it, I I recognize that it was because I was living with this assumption that as long as I follow Jesus, as long as our family is in the center of God's will, and we're doing God's work and we're building God's kingdom. And we're, I mean, we were, we were like the you know, we're the paratrooping special forces of building God's kingdom, church planting and stuff that things might, bad things might happen, but nothing super bad that God was mm-hmm. going to keep us protected. And so I kind of lived with that um, assumption and presumption. And so I'm thinking, man, we're everything's gonna be fine. We're gonna go to the hospital. It's gonna be okay. Stuff like this doesn't happen to people like us. And so paramedics come, they attend to her, they have me follow her to the hospital. We're sitting in a waiting room. I've got Weston, our 15 month old on my knee, and I'm going, buddy. We're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. Now, obviously, I'm like in shock. I'm shaking. I don't know what in the world's going on, but I'm expecting the doctors to come back and say, "Hey, she's good. She's stabilized. Let's go back and and see her." And the next thing I know, investigators and doctors walk through the door, and they start asking me a lot of questions, and they're very invasive questions. Um, and and so it, it starts occurring to me that this is not something didn't happen with the pregnancy and they 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 say Davey we we found there's three bullet wounds in Amanda. One is in her arm, one is grazed over her back and one is in the back of her head. And there's a bullet lodged behind her eye and if we can get the swelling in the brain to go down then we'll try to operate but it doesn't look good. And uh mean Mike I to this day I'm not sure if it's if it's Shock or denial or faith or some weird combination thereof that caused me to do what I did next. But I grabbed the doctor's hand and I said, We're going to pray. And I prayed the biggest, boldest prayer of faith that I could ever muster up. I said, God, there are people in this hospital who are trusting in science, they're trusting in reason and logic, and they don't know you, but you are setting our family up for a miracle to put you on display and you're going to sweep a revival across this hospital. Would you begin right now, just mending brain matter back in Amanda's head? Would you heal her completely and restore her? And it was, I mean, Mike, I had the faith. Mm -hmm. Um, but 24 hours later, uh, test results came back and she was declared officially deceased. Um, she passed away, uh, Doctors think that she was already gone when we found her, but she was officially declared deceased 24 hours later. On November 11th, 2015, four years to the day that we packed a
0: moving van up and moved to plant the church. You know, you, on your podcast, Davey, you had Joni Erickson and Tata, and she she made a statement. It's one of the most riveting statements I've ever heard. Pain is a friend that can introduce us to a Jesus- You would never know. Yeah. What about Jesus have you learned since that moment that you could not have known another way? Yeah. What would you say? Well, there's, I mean, we could talk about this probably for hours.
1: Mm. Um, I think most initially what I learned is as simple and yet profound as this truth is, is that Jesus is with you
0: Mm.
1: in those moments and he's with you in a very personalized way. Um, I call it the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. You know, I think a lot of times we try to, as leaders, as pastors, we try to go in and uh, help somebody or assuage their pain by giving them words. And, and yes, sometimes words, especially scripture, can comfort them but the most powerful thing is a ministry of presence. And what's more powerful than our presence with them is Jesus's presence with Mm -hmm. us. And that is what I learned in the initial phases after that. And, and, and here's where I'll give you a couple of situations where we felt Jesus's presence so clearly. The first was while we were waiting on test results to come back and I'm sitting in the hospital room, on one side of Amanda's bed and her sister Amber's on the other side of her bed. Um, An interesting Uh, recollection back to, and we're literally sitting on the same sides of her hospital bed as we were when um, she had Weston. Amanda, I mean, Amber and I were the only ones in the room with Amanda when she had Weston. So here we are again now as she's taking her last breaths and we're waiting for test results and we're just praying. And I knew that if Amanda was um, in any way hearing us, if she was conscious at all, that she'd want to listen to elevation worship. And so I grabbed a phone and put it on Pandora radio station, Elevation Worship. And I don't know if you know how Pandora works, but it's it's randomized, right? So you have no idea what song's coming on next. The first song that came on when we turned that when we hit play on that was the song "Nothing Is Wasted."
0: Oh my gosh!
1: By Elevation. Yep. And in that moment, Mike, we felt it was like the heavens opened up and we felt the Holy Spirit rush in and just speak to our hearts and say, I am not going to waste this. Mm. The second song was Good, Good Father. Mm. And um, that kind of led to our entire family just congregating around Amanda's bed and just worshiping. Mm. Um, I found out later, interestingly enough, from one of my now wife Now, my wife, now Christy, her friends, who was a PA on the hall at that time, found out that she had texted everybody in her small group, including Christy, who I didn't know Christy at the time, we had never met, nothing, right? Texted Christy and her small group saying, you should see what's happening in this hospital right now. It's like a revival breaking out, this family that's worshiping over this this, uh, girl that got shot. Mm -hmm. and so the the holy spirit showed up in those moments in ways that are so palpable that you and and yet so profound you can't even describe it but he was there and i think we see this you know um, later i started digging into scripture and seeing a lot of different things and reading psalms Mm -hmm. in ways i'd never read them before but psalm 23 especially is one that just came to life for me and you see the nature of this in Psalm 23, right? You see in the first three verses when things seem to be going well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, res- you know, leaves me besides the waters, yep. restores my soul. It's all in third person. Yep. It's talking about God as in he, you know, the shepherd, referencing him then. But when verse four hits, which is the crisis verse, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it switches mm-hmm. and it switches to second person. Mm-hmm. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. I will not fear because you are with me. And all of a sudden it becomes very personal, like the psalmist is talking directly to the shepherd. And I think that's because we get to know God on the mountaintops when things are going well. And we love those seasons when things are going well. We get to, we, we, we get to know about him, but, but it's only in the valley that mm. we truly get to know him. Mm-hmm. And he begins to reveal to us mysteries about himself. It's almost like pain becomes this key that unlocks mysteries of God that we would never otherwise be privy to. And, and we get to, we, it's like uh, Isaiah 30, it talks about how, though he gives us the scripture, it says in Isaiah 30, he gives us the water of the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. The teacher will hide himself no more, mm. but he will be like a voice whispering to you, This is the way, walk in it. And it's like, he begins to reveal to us these mysteries about who he is and about what the world is really like and what our perspective should be like. If we open ourselves up to him in those moments of crisis and we say, I don't know, like second Chronicle says, I don't know what to do right now, but, but God, my eyes are on you. And in those moments, then he starts ministering to us in ways that nobody else and nothing else can. And so my confidence in Jesus is stronger than it ever has been because of how he showed up for me in so many different ways in the aftermath of all of that.
0: Was, was there a point in it here? You are your pastor. You've preached sermons about it. You grew up in church. You've heard your dad preach sermons about it. Yeah. You've gone to a Christian college. Was there a part of this? You're like at at any point you, this isn't what I signed up for God. I don't, this isn't walk me through that journey a little bit. Sometimes I still have those thoughts. (laughs) Like this isn't what I,
1: yeah. Um, you know, emotionally, there's, there's a difference between like how we react emotionally and how, what we know to be true, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're right. I knew all of these things to be true. And, you know, again, like we talked about earlier, this idea of caught, not taught, like yeah. I joke around sometimes I had a drug problem growing up. I was drugged to church every time the doors <laughs> were open. Right. But what that did is it deposited these things so That's deeply right. into my heart that, I did not know I'd need to ta- I would need to take those withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that there was some stuff even deposited that deeply. But it, because I had been immersed in church and in Christian culture and all of this, but like a good, true, genuine Christian culture of seeing people of real faith walk out their faith in adversity, that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And so it, it became almost like this muscle memory that came out And yet at the same time, there was this this, um, wrestling because grief and shock and disappointment and all of those things are still true and they exist and they create emotions in you that are extremely overwhelming. Mm. Uh, The first three or four weeks after this, Mike, I became physically sick, partially because I didn't know... um, I looking back on it now is because I I didn't I didn't want to embrace what I was feeling. Mm. I didn't I didn't know what I was feeling. I was so I was hurt so much. I was angry. I was mad at God. I was frustrated. I was disappointed and I and I was so lonely and longed for Amanda mm. that I didn't know how to like flesh that out properly and so I held it all inside. And it became this like festering, rotting thing in the pit of my stomach that actually manifested itself in physical sickness. Wow. So after about three or four weeks, I was, I remember at one point staying at a friend of ours house who was in our church, a family was in our church, because I had not gone, I didn't go back into my house. It was, it was a crime scene. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm staying on the, and I could not get off their couch except to go to the bathroom whenever. I needed to either throw up or, you know, coming out the other side. I mean, it was just, I was so physically distraught and I could not fathom how in the world I was going to make it to next week, let alone how I was going to live the next five, 10, 20 years without Amanda. And what's so cool about what God does is he, he shows up for us in some very powerful moments like we've already talked about, but he also brings people around you. That's right. These like really, I mean, very providential uh, moments where he sends somebody your way to remind you of something or to minister to you in that moment. And I remember laying on this couch and getting a text message from Pastor Levi Lusko, uh, who wrote "Eyes of a Lion" um, through the eyes of a lion. And it was it was a profound journey for us because Amanda and I, two weeks before she passed away, listened to a message that he preached. Two weeks before she is, we walk into this tragedy, we're listening to a message that he preached together and we're just sobbing. And he's talking about losing his daughter and how God ministers. So God started preparing our hearts for pain. And somehow, a month later, after the tragedy, he gets my number. He reaches out to me, texts me while I'm just physically sick. And right there, um, an agent, right. Of God's grace, um, shows up for me. And I, and he says, Hey man, what do you need? And I just start texting him, and he just r- reminds me of these simple truths that we have no idea. We don't, don't um, unnecessarily begin projecting through the next 5, 10, 20 years. Take this a step at a time. Mm. And all the things that cause you anger and fear and these heightened emotions begin walking into those things and letting God unpack those things and unravel those things, and he will heal you. And it was so timely for me to to be ministered to in that way and so i began decidedly going okay what is it that i need to do to unravel these emotions and begin placing them at the feet of jesus and letting him one at a time heal me from these things
0: mm. you so, know in in every every tragedy has its own complexity mm-hmm. yours brought the complexity of there are there is evil in this world. Yeah. And that evil visited your home. Forgiveness is that the sort of that linchpin we all have to deal with in some arena, but yours was a very public arena. How was the forgiveness piece for you? Yeah. You know, know, I I am who I am because Christ forgave me. Right. Now you've got three guys that this is now really real to you. How did that, how was that part of your journey? Yeah. Well, you know, initially,
1: it's just exactly like what you said, I, I preached a lot of messages on forgiveness prior to all of this, you know, and um, I believe there are moments where you're going to come face to face with the things that you say you believe. Mm-hmm. And it's going to test you to see if you really do believe those things. And I hope, you know, that it's it, that for everybody listening to this, it's not a moment as as dire or as Critical as what what you know we've had to walk through, but but we're all going to get tested by this. And I remember, um, you know, the first couple of weeks of everything, Mike is there's a lot of shock. And fortunately, New spring brought a team down to help me navigate what became the media firestorm of all of this. And so there were lots of obviously news requests and asking me to come onto this show and that show and and. We knew two things. One, we knew that the media was going to create a narrative uh, of whatever they wanted to create, and they were going to focus on the crime if we didn't get proactive with it and tell people the narrative that we knew Amanda's life was supposed to speak, and that was the love of Jesus. And so strategically this team at new spring thankfully i had i we, we don't know how in the world we would have navigated this without them but i expressed to them i just want to make sure that the final moments of Amanda's life is not what's put on display but she would want jesus to be put on display so they said yes to the media outlets they could trust that we could share that and they said no to all the other ones i mean it's probably a hundred to one no to yes and so there were a couple of media outlets that we came on and I made statements like, I watch them now and I'm like, man, I don't even recognize, I was a shell of a person I then, bet. but I made statements like I've chosen to forgive these men. And that again, roots back to the fact that I knew, I, I knew and there was something about that moment that I knew uh, th- this had gotten so public and so big, so fast that it felt like to me that kind of all of Christendom was sitting on edge, waiting to say, what is this guy going to say about this? Mm. That this was like a moment that was bigger than me, that was bigger than Amanda, that was bigger than any of our family. This was a moment that was like Jesus's reputation. Yeah. And we've all seen Jesus's reputation get tarnished, tarnished or attempted to get tarnished by people who in these moments, they did not handle themselves well. And, um, and, and so I just, I kept having that scripture echo in the back of my head. If you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before the father. Right. And one of these moments where I go, okay, I know that I've got to share the message of forgiveness, that Jesus has forgiven me, that I'm a conduit of forgiveness because he's forgiven me. And so I can extend that forgiveness as well and choose not to be bitter about it. And then my thought process was I'll share that and then we'll get away and we'll duck out of all of this <laughs> stuff. And then we'll figure out how to actually live that. Yeah. And so the next several months became the, okay, how do we actually live this out? Like, how do we actually let that get deep into our soul? And it got tested for the first time when they made the arrests. And now it was, you know, first it was this faceless, you know, and I just dealt with sadness and loneliness and, and, you know, despondence and depression. But then when I saw the faces of them, I dealt with anger Mm. and that's when forgiveness truly began to get tested and so the, God just began leading me on a journey. And, and one of the things that has really helped me is this idea that when I step back and recognize that these three men are not the real enemy, mm, that's that they, they were agents that's good. of evil, right? They were influenced by the real enemy, though. And the real enemy is Satan, mm. who Jesus said comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Mm. He is the mastermind behind everything that is unraveling about this earth right now the mastermind behind sin, crime, cancer, all of it. And so who really stole my wife away from me, essentially, according to Jesus' words, is the enemy, yeah. Satan. And so if I want to step into what Jesus invites all of us into, to partner with him in the real work of vengeance against the enemy because there's something wired in each one of us this justice vengeance kind of thing is wired in us okay like we watch Liam Neeson movies and we're like yeah you know what I mean like but that's because God put that in us and then what he asks us to do is partner with him in this really upside down work that allows him to take on the work of vengeance and, and so he says this in multiple places. It says it in Deuteronomy, it says it in Proverbs, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So we can trust him with vengeance. He's a much better avenger than we are. We mess it up every time. Every time we try to go tit for tat or we try to, you know, eye for an eye or any of that kind of stuff where we try to get someone back for what they've done to us, we absolutely screw up the entire process. But what Jesus calls us to do is he says, do something completely upside down. And I want you to fight this fire, not with fire, but with water. Mm. Fight this evil and this perpetuation of evil that has been a result of bitterness and unforgiveness. And fight this thing with forgiveness and love. And when you do that, what you're doing is you are actually waging war in the unseen against the real enemy that did something to you. And that, to me, I kind of look at it like it's like this, you know, kick in the face to the enemy. Every time I choose to wake up and forgive the men who killed Amanda. Now, forgiveness, and we talk about, we, we, there's so many, I've done several teachings on it, So People can go find teachings on how we par- parse this out a little bit more. But forgiveness does not mean they're absolved from the consequences of their actions by any means. What it means, though, is that I'm choosing not to hang on to the bitterness. That's right toward them. I'm not going to hold them accountable to this personally, because what that does is that just is a it's a poison that sits and festers and rots inside of me. It doesn't hurt them at all. It just hurts me. And then it oozes out of me and hurts the people I love around me. Because I walk around with as, as just this unforgiving, vengeful person.
0: Yeah, and the enemy wins twice. And the enemy wins twice. He won that day, and then every day you live, he wins again. And what I love about your story, Davey, is you didn't stop anywhere in the story. You never pushed pause. You didn't say, okay, I I signed up for something totally different. One of the most poignant scenes I think I've ever watched was you visited your dad's church after this. Mm -hmm. And it was an evening service, and your dad prayed over you and i tell you what man um a dad never stops being a dad yeah. and i could see in that moment when your dad stood you up in that crowd and he in the crowd reached out their hands and they prayed over you and you you shared a word but it was that it was the picture of a dad who's praying life over yeah. his son and what I love about that is what an earthly picture of a heavenly father yeah. who I know was doing the very same thing and that song that came on in that hospital room nothing is wasted has become a real life for you yes so so give me a little of a full circle of where you are today and how you're using a tragedy the enemy meant mm. for evil for God to use for good tell me a little of the nothing is wasted story and how all this has come together
1: yeah well part of the healing process for me, as I began unraveling my emotions was I started writing mm. and I wrote a blog and just kind of kept that blog updated. And, you know, I was amazed, Mike, there were tens of thousands, some, some posts hundreds of thousands of people that were reading this blog and they were getting impacted by this. And I'm like, man, there's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of hurt out there. I didn't, I didn't realize it. Um, and so then God began connecting me with all these other people who had these pain stories and that I began borrowing faith from them. Mm. Mm. And so, so then I felt like uh, in, in a lot of ways, as I'm getting healed over the next year, year and a half, two years, as God's healing me and taking me on this profound journey, I, I feel like I'm being misunderstood a little bit by the world cuz they're like there's no way this guy should still be pastoring and ministering to people and leading people like what's wrong with him there must be something inherently wrong with him you know and I'm like no what's what's amazing is this is Jesus like you this is you right. don't understand because he keeps bringing people around me that they have these profound redemption stories and I'm just borrowing their their faith until I have it my myself And finally, I go, you know, it'd be really cool if we just put a microphone in front of all of these people and began just sharing stories so that the world could hear the things that be privy to the conversations that I am. So we did. And we called it the Nothing is Wasted podcast. And for a a while, I was pastoring the church that we started still. And um, which, by the way, uh, I wouldn't suggest this, but the year after Amanda passed away, so 2016, she passed away at the end of 2015, 2016, I still preached 35 Sundays at my church there. I would never suggest that. I Now looking back on it, it was probably not a good thing for me. But at the time, I felt like I needed to go and, and partner with God to take back territory. And mm-hmm. when I would preach, it was so healing and cathartic to me, because I felt like a warrior going and taking back you know what the enemy had been stealing from me because I was now stealing souls essentially right. out of the enemy. So I was preaching the gospel and people were coming to meet Jesus and people were being healed from their tragedies and traumas and so. I'm running these two things simultaneously. I'm, you know, pastoring this church and this podcast is starting and God's growing this podcast like crazy. It's amazing to me how many people were just listening in on these pain stories. And then I would get asked to go and speak at other churches and share our story. And people would come up afterwards and they go, oh my gosh, that was so inspiring. But this is the question they'd ask, what do we do next? Mm. And that question began to sit on me because what I didn't want was, our life to speak of something that was just a flash in the pan that, that inspired people. I wanted to make sure our life and our family's life and whatever God did in the next 20, 30 years, it was something that actually helped people be transformed. We moved from inspiration to transformation. And so um, at the end of 2018 um, I now let me hit pause in this during all of this process, I met this beautiful girl, Christy, who um, long story short, when I met her, one of the first conversations that that she and I actually got a deep conversation in, she told me that her stepdad is the chaplain for Marion County prison system and has been sharing the gospel with these men that killed Amanda. Holy smokes. So you know, this and this was like this was like at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, that I began seeing She'd come to my church and I'm like, what? This girl, there's something about her. I'm drawn to her. Also a pastor's kid. Interesting. And um, and then I finally get her kind of cornered in a conversation, very pastorally, ask her about herself. And she shares this with me. And I'm like, and that's why she'd been kind of trying to avoid me for a few months and stuff. She just didn't she didn't know how to tell me that. And man, like I, I again, fell pretty hard and fast for this girl, kept pursuing her for a few more months until she finally agreed to go on a date with me. And then by the end of 2017, we were married. We blended our family. And so we kept pastoring the church for a year, but the end of 2018, we're running these two things simultaneously. I'm traveling and speaking. I've got this podcast. We're trying to figure out how to flesh this whole thing out into a ministry. And God begins knocking on our hearts and asking us to do what, probably is the hardest thing uh, other than losing Amanda is the hardest decision that I've ever had to make. And that is to step away from the church that Amanda and I started to respond to this need full-time and help people in their trauma and their tragedies and come alongside the local church. And although that was the hardest move we i mean we wrestled and cried and just i mean it was the it was it was it was so uh, again i got physically sick mm. wrestling with this decision but there was something so clear about god's calling to say you need to step away from this. It's a new season, it's a new chapter, and I'm calling you into this ministry. And now, Mike, it makes so much sense to me because we are seeing how God is opening up doors to come alongside the church and be able to minister to people in their
0: pain and to help equip the church to minister to people in pain. You know, your your podcast, and I told you this before we went on, it's one of my go-tos. I've got about 10 go-to podcasts, hmm. and yours is one of them, and yours is you you hear these stories and it really is unbelievable how mm-hmm. God takes the worst. Yep. And somehow you go, they make it. And I, and it's, it's hope for somebody else that you yeah. can make it. If you will, if you will hang in there, what is your biggest prayer Davy, that God will use this ministry to do in the lives of others? What would you say? You know, um, I, I go back
1: to, there's a story about King David. Uh, it's a very little known story. I mean, I had never seen it until after my wife passed away. And it's a story about him coming back from the battlefield with all of his men. And he comes upon his camp and he finds that the enemies, have his enemies have stolen, kidnapped all of their wives and all their kids. And it's amazing the response that he has. The response he has is he literally, he goes, bring me a linen ephod, which is a really odd response, right? They come back, their camp is all burned. They find out that their wives have been stolen. They're like, and he goes, bring me a linen ephod. Well, a linen ephod is also called the garment of praise. It's what the Mm -hmm. priest would wear before he would go in and he would commune with God, he would meet with God. And we see David do this in a different situation. There's another situation where he wears a linen ephod and that's when he's coming back after having conquest and triumphed his enemies and he's parading into the town and he's dancing, right? More undignified than this in a linen ephod. So two situations, tragedy and triumph. Mm -hmm. He is turning that back into praise, okay? he is he is right there in those moments meeting with god a man after god's own heart my first prayer is that that we can help people understand how god wants to meet with them in their tragedies and their triumphs that god's there and that this pain is just it, for us it's another portal of evangelism
0: mm-hmm.
1: That somehow we've been able to intercept people in the moment of their darkest need, their greatest trauma, and show them the only person that can really heal them. And that's Jesus. And so that's my, that's my first prayer is that people come to know Christ in droves because of this ministry. But then my second prayer is what happens next. He praises God, puts the linen ephod on it. Then he asks God, God, what should I do? And God goes, go take your wife back go get her back. And I believe that there are so many Christians that are walking around living half of their purpose, living half of the fulfillment they could, because the enemy has stolen something from them. And they don't realize that God's call for their life now, after salvation, is to partner with him to take back their story. He wants to redeem it. He wants to turn their story into something that is way more powerful than any of us could ever imagine or ask for, because it's got the power of the Holy Spirit behind it now. And God wants to turn this thing that we saw as an interruption into an invitation into a greater story for our lives. And that's what I want people to see is I want people to realize the redemption story that God has for them, the narrative that he has for them, where he is redemption means that you're taking something off the shelf that was once dormant, that was once put up, discarded, right? You're taking it off the shelf and you're restoring it back to the purpose it was created it for. That's what it means to redeem. And that's what God wants to do for each one of us. And I just feel like there are a lot of Christians who they're saved, but man, they haven't realized that that. God is inviting them to partner with him to take back their story.
0: Whew, uh, that's a tough one. But man, to end that story with hope. You know, since we recorded that episode, Davey and I have been able to meet up here in Atlanta uh, when he and his precious wife drove through town and uh, just had some good few minutes together. And he is the real deal. And I am so thankful Men like Davy are telling their stories, using their stories to bring us hope. Thank you so much, Davy, for that reminder that God never wastes our time and he never wastes our experiences. They're always for others and for us because we can look back and see how faithful the Lord was. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Davey Blackburn. Man, if you enjoyed this episode, if it was inspiring to you, number one, I'd love for you to share it with a friend. Man, leave a review, leave a rating, and then share it. That's a great way to get the word out. Also, man, I challenge you to go download Davey's podcast. It is full of great interviews of other stories, much like Davey's, that have learned that God never lets you down, and he never lets you go. Woo, good stuff. Well, in our next episode, episode 103, we'll get together with a guy who's a good friend. He is a gentleman that is the CEO and the founder and president of Positive Athlete. And man, does he have a story and you will be encouraged. Thanks again for tuning in today and go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you.